Good morning. Ever have one of those days where you got one ear that's plugged? And it makes yourself, as you talk, it, it, it just seems funny. It's like you're talking out of a barrel on one side and the other side just... But nevertheless, it, it's not going to keep my mouth from working. Too bad for you, huh? So, Luke chapter 9 this morning. <coughs> Luke chapter 9, I want to go back to the Gospel of Luke today. We were in a series of messages last year from Luke's Gospel. We switched gears a little bit uh, come December as we focused in on the Christmas season. And then this past month as we kind of emphasized this theme about rebooting our lives. And we're not going to get totally away from the reboot idea. We're still going to bring that up from time to time because Jesus was constantly rebooting his disciples' thinking. So we're still going to see that. But I do want you to notice a verse in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9 verse 51, there's an important verse of scripture that signals a transition. In that verse it says, it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now folks, there are 24 chapters in the gospel of Luke. But that verse in chapter 9, verse 51, tells us that Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. And so from that verse in chapter 9 all the way through chapter 24, we're looking at the conclusion of Jesus' life on earth. The conclusion of his ministry on earth, the, the passion narratives of his death and burial and resurrection. So chapter 9, verse 51, signals the beginning of the end. But what I want to do this morning is take a look at verses 22 through 27 in Luke 9. Some, some things he said just before he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem before he set his face to go to the cross. Jesus, uh, just prior to that, had asked his disciples a question about his identity. Who do people say that I am, he asked them. And they basically gave him three answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, like Jeremiah. In other words, a, a servant of God that had died, a well-known servant of God that had died but had come back to life. But then he asked them the question of all questions, who do you say that I am? And that's a question every one of us has to answer. It's a question that every person that has ever lived and ever will live will have to answer. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is the Messiah? And your eternity depends upon how you answer that question. Because a wrong answer could send you into an eternity in hell. A right answer to send you safely into an eternity in heaven. Well, Simon Peter, that had basically become the spokesman of the group, responded by saying, you're the Christ of God. And he was absolutely right. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is one of those, those high points in the Gospels, this confession that Peter made. 
Now, having taught his disciples who he was, Jesus now is going to teach them what he came to this world to do. And he's going to begin to reboot his disciples' thinking about the nature and the work of the Messiah. Because, you see, they were expecting an earthly, military, political kind of Messiah reigning over an earthly kingdom with a human army. But what they get is a spiritual kingdom with a heavenly army. They're expecting liberation from Rome through a conquering king. They're going to get liberation from sin through a risen Lord. It's a much better deal than they had ever hoped for, although they don't realize that at this moment. Our text this morning is the first time that Jesus clearly alludes to his death. Shortly after this, Jesus is going to be transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And then from that point on, Luke is going to focus on their journey to Jerusalem. And the emphasis will be on the approaching death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But what does this passage in verses 22 through 29 or 27 Why is it important to us today? What does this say to us today? Well, in our text this morning, Jesus will not only speak about his suffering and impending death, he's also going to speak about yours and mine. And so I think we would want to pay close attention. So notice what he says beginning in verse 22. Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, right now, speak to us through your word. Help us to understand what you want us to understand. Help us to apply what we need to apply. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus begins this teaching by saying that he, the Son of Man, has to suffer many things. Now, what a way to begin. I mean, Andy talked last week about Peter's roller coaster faith. And I think here it is for everyone to see. Peter just made his confession that Jesus is the Christ of God, Christ the, the Son of the living God. Jesus had commended him for that. So Peter's faith, I think, is flying really high. And then Jesus says, but I'm going to die soon. And Peter's faith may well have taken a big plunge. Notice Jesus says that the Son of Man, what's the next word? Must. Must. Don't miss that word. That's a word of necessity. 
Jesus uses the same word when Nicodemus comes to him under cover of night. Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, the elite group of men that led Judaism, he was a, a leader among leaders, the, a, a leader among the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and Sadducees. And Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again. And right after that, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why this word must? Because it's a matter of necessity. This had to happen. You see, Jesus isn't referring to the fact that he's going to be a victim of circumstances or, or that he had no choice. He's talking about the sovereign plan of God. This is the eternal will of the Heavenly Father. He had to die on the cross for man's sins. In Acts 2, verse 23, Peter says Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no accident. He wasn't a victim of circumstances. God had this plan before he ever created Adam and Eve, before he ever created the heavens and the earth. This was a predetermined plan. And this was the only way to satisfy the divine dilemma. God is a just God, and he must punish sin. But God is also a God of mercy, and he doesn't want to punish us. So God solved man's predicament by sending his one and only son to die for us. Jesus had to die to satisfy the justice of God and the mercy and love of God. In fact, there are four things Jesus told his disciples that must happen. He must suffer many things. Secondly, he must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Thirdly, he must be killed. And fourthly, he must rise again. And so the must of verse 22 tells us of the necessity of it. There's no other way. The solution to the divine dilemma was the cross. God's a holy God. He can't overlook sin. But he's also a loving God who forgives sinners. So when Jesus began to talk to his disciples about the cross, he spoke in terms of it being something that must happen. We see the necessity of it. But we also see the misery of it. Jesus said in verse 22 that he must be killed. This wasn't going to be easy. And who knows how much Jesus really did suffer. The word for killed here is not a word used for a normal death. It doesn't mean Jesus would come to earth and live to be an old man. It doesn't mean that he would have the privilege of dying of natural causes. No, the word for killed is a Greek word that refers to a violent death. It means he would be slaughtered. It means to slay, to inflict mortal death. And we know crucifixion, of course, was the most violent form of punishment ever devised at least to that point. You know, when you look at an artist's depiction or painting of the cross, that it's usually not accurate. 
Why do I say that? Have you always been able to tell which one Jesus is? Sure. Well, for one thing, if there's three crosses, we know he's the one in the middle. But if there's only one cross, you still, in your mind, are thinking what? That is? That's Jesus. Right. But the Bible says he had been through so much that he was unrecognizable. And yet you say you can recognize him. Isaiah 52, verse 14 says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, I I know where you're coming from because I come from the same place. Yeah, I recognize that's an artist's depiction of the suffering of Christ and of his death on the cross. And yet, no artist has ever pictured Jesus the way he really was, marred beyond human likeness. Now, praise God, it wouldn't end that way because verse 22 also says that he would be raised up on the third day. Jesus' death would end in victory. And even though he he repeatedly told his disciples he's going to have victory over death, they still missed it. They missed it. They just didn't get it. In fact, in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 8, it tells how Peter took Jesus aside from the other disciples and basically said, no way. This isn't going to happen. It's almost like Peter is saying, I won't let this happen to you. And at face value, it looks like what Peter's doing is something good, like he's protecting Jesus. But that's not what was happening. Because Jesus said to Peter in Mark 8, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus recognized another voice behind the voice of Simon Peter. Same voice that he'd heard out in the wilderness when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. The same voice that had tried to get him to ditch God's plan and enjoy the power and prestige and the perks of of the world. It was Satan's voice that was essentially saying, avoid the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. You see, Peter didn't get it yet. Yes, he'd made a great confession as to the identity of Jesus, but now he's being a stumbling block. He didn't understand the will of God. He didn't understand the relationship between suffering and glory. Now, he would eventually get it. In fact, he would eventually even encourage it in the letter that bears his name. But right now, he just didn't get it. And what do you think the rest of the disciples are thinking at this point? If there's suffering and death coming for Jesus... What's coming for us? Will we have to suffer and die too? I think it's both ironic and tragic that in our world today, there are so many false teachers that teach and preach a completely different gospel than Jesus did. They say that we don't ever have to be sick. We don't have to suffer. You never have to have sorrow in your life. We can have whatever we want whenever we want it. It's just name it and claim it. You can have your best life now. They say that since we're God's children, we deserve to live like kings. Wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
Peter, once he got it and understood, would later write in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's not strange or uncommon when we go through the trials and, and tough times of life. We need to expect it, but we can become more like Jesus when we come through them triumphantly. Now notice what Jesus says next in verse 23 and following. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now verse 23 indicates that even though Jesus and his disciples had met in private, that the crowds weren't very far away. And so he calls the, the people around, all the people. He proceeds to teach them what he had just told his disciples. There is a cost to following me. There's a price to pay for genuine discipleship. And Jesus knew that most of those people in the crowd were following him for the miracles and the meals. <laughs> a free meal ticket. And you know, to a certain extent, that's still true today. There are many people who follow the Lord or get involved in a church as long as they can see a personal benefit to it. You know, what's in it for me? But as soon as there's a cost involved or a call for sacrifice, they can't find the door quickly enough. But Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that is an open invitation, open to everyone. It's still open this morning. Anyone can come to Jesus. That's you. That's me. It's an open invitation. It's also an awesome invitation. But it's not the kind of invitation that a lot of people expect. In fact, they may say, okay, what's this invitation all about? Well, Jesus says it's going to involve three things. Self-denial, suffering, and submission. And a lot of people will turn and walk away. But talk about it. Let's talk about it. Self-denial. Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That word deny is a Greek word that means to disown, to refuse to associate with or companion with someone. And we are to deny who? Ourselves. It means we are to disown ourselves. We are to refuse to associate with ourselves. Sounds kind of weird. In other words, it means I no longer want to be the person that I used to be. I want to be who Jesus wants me to be. That's what this denial is all about. It's not just about denying yourself some ice cream or, or a candy bar or, or, or a piece of pie, okay? No, this is an absolute surrender of your will to the will of Christ. Paul, 
in Philippians 3, 4 through 8. He talked about all the things that he had, all of his accomplishments, every reason that he had to put confidence in the flesh. And he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Self-denial, an absolute surrender of your will to the will of Jesus. But then he talks about suffering. He said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Take up our cross daily. Now keep in mind, Jesus has not told his disciples yet that he's going to be crucified. Just that he's going to be killed. He's told them he's going to suffer and die, but he hasn't mentioned that he's going to be crucified. But yet, when he mentions a cross, his disciples would immediately think of what? Crucifixion. I mean, that, that's what a cross meant at that time. It was a very cruel but common form of punishment then, and the Romans were experts at it. So Jesus is saying, I'm headed towards death. And to be honest, so are you. But what are our crosses? If we're to take up our cross daily, what are our crosses? Because from time to time, you might hear someone say, well, that's the cross I have to bear. Is it? Is it really a cross? You see, I think many people misunderstand what it means to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Our crosses are not simply trials or hardships. Maybe you, at work, maybe you've got a, a nutty boss. Or... Or, or maybe uh, you've got a, a teacher that's really quirky and you just can't please that teacher at school or college or whatever. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've got a bossy mother-in-law. I don't know, you know. But you think, well, those are the crosses that I have to bear. No, they're not. Those aren't crosses. Some people have health issues or maybe a physical handicap they have to deal with throughout their life. And they say, well, that's the cross I have to bear. No, it's not. A cross, listen close, folks. A cross results from specifically walking in Christ's steps. From embracing his life. A cross comes from bearing reproach. Because we're following the narrow way of Jesus. Everybody's going to have hardships and trials. Jesus told us that. In this world you will have tribulation. James says count it all joy when, not if, you encounter the various trials in this life. We're all going to go through that. Those aren't the crosses. A cross comes from specifically walking in Christ's steps and embracing his life. It comes from living out the business and sexual ethics of Christ in the marketplace, in the community, the family, and the world. 
A cross comes from standing true in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. You see, our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. That's a cross. Difficulties don't always indicate cross-bearing. Although difficulties for Christ's sake do. Do you have any difficulties that have come upon you because you're following Christ so closely? That's a cross. And what does a cross indicate? What is assumed if somebody's carrying a cross? That they're going to be crucified, right? It indicates crucifixion. To carry a cross means you're going to be crucified. Herb read this verse of scripture and it's called worship. Galatians 2 verse 20 where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. You see, to say yes to Jesus means to say no to self, to say no to safety. We're we're willing to suffer for him because we know salvation and eternity in heaven are worth far more than anything in this world. And there are countless missionaries today and others as well that are suffering physically and undergoing beatings and some even death in order to take the gospel throughout the world. They know what self-denial and suffering really mean and what it means to take up your cross daily. And bear reproach for the gospel. And the third thing here he mentions, submission. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. The word literally means to imitate. How simple is that? You say you're a follower of Christ, then imitate him. Be like him. 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Our lives should be marked by obedience. Our lives should be marked by abiding, by remaining in Him. Our lives should be marked by us walking like Him, talking like Him, being like Him. That is submission to Him. That's the principle. There's also a paradox in verse 24. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. You know, if if you look to this world like, Like you're losing out, you're really not. As Christians, we're winning. The world may think we're losing. We're not. We're winning. And remember verse 25 says, What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or or forfeits his soul? If you could achieve and gain everything this world has to give, but you lose your soul for all of eternity... There's nothing worth that. Nothing. And verse 26 makes it clear that if you're ashamed to follow Jesus now, you won't be following him later. You ever been ashamed of Jesus or the fact that you follow him? The world will do everything they can to make you feel ashamed or embarrassed for following Jesus, but you just keep following him anyway. You see, there are consequences for our choices. 
So be careful how you choose. Be careful who you choose. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It profits him absolutely nothing. Matthew 10, 32 says, So everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Confess what? Confesses me, Jesus says. In other words, confess what Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you done that? I know the majority of you have. But if you've never confessed your faith in Christ Jesus and have never accepted him as your Lord and your Savior, why not do it this morning, right now? We're going to give you an opportunity to make that good confession of faith. That you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you want to obey the gospel, accept him as your Lord and Savior, be immersed in water, at which point he's going to remove all your sins and give you the abiding presence, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And raise you up to walk in newness of life and give you the promise of everlasting life. Why wouldn't you want that? Choose to live for Jesus. It'll involve self-denial and suffering submission. But it's absolutely worth it. Because we win. We win. If you have a decision you'd like to make for Christ today, a public decision, you just come down and meet me in front as we stand and as we sing.